welcome back to the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. Today on the show, we're going to talk with former longtime journalist Sue Ellen Browder about the propaganda she and others sold women about sex. But first, I have a couple of quick announcements. I have a brand new shop page on my website that I'm really excited about. It just went up, and it has three ebooks as of now. One's coming soon, and the other's just released. It's called How to Be a Wife, Seven Secret Steps to a Peaceful and Passionate Relationship with Your Man. And I'm so excited about it. It's a big deal for me to have a new shop page on my site and not go through publishers or Amazon or anything else because you all don't have to deal with a markup and I get total control over my work. So it's it's a new venture for me. I'm really excited. And yeah, you can find that at SuzanneVenker.com slash shop. Also, I'd like to remind you to become a Patreon subscriber. There are four very economical levels, and when you sign up, you get all kinds of perks, such as free ebooks, a shout-out on the show, and even a Q&A with me, depending on which tier you choose. All you have to do is go to thesuzannebenkershow.com and scroll down just a bit until you see the Become a Patron button in the middle of the page. Finally, just a reminder that my husband, Bill, will be joining us here once a month for a new segment I'm calling The Bill and Suzanne Hour. The first episode will be aired on August 17th. Every week, I talk to women who've been utterly bamboozled by a culture steeped in feminist propaganda regarding sex, dating, and relationships. So many of their problems stem from the sexual revolution, but rarely is this revolution talked about separately from the feminist movement. How did the women's movement, which fought for equal opportunity for women in education and the workplace, and the sexual revolution, which reduced women to ambitious sex objects, become so united? My guest today answers that question in her book, Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. As a longtime freelance writer for Cosmopolitan Magazine, Sue Ellen Browder wrote articles meant to soft-sell unmarried sex, contraception, and abortion as the single woman's path to personal fulfillment. Deeply regretting her involvement in such propaganda, Browder now admits that everything she wrote about the sexual revolution was based on lies. Now living a simple life in Wyoming, Sue Ellen is exposing feminist propaganda from the perspective of a whistleblower. And before we welcome Sue Ellen to the show, here's a quick clip from a video that was done by The Daily Signal. We pretended that this sexual revolution was a freedom for women. It actually was not. It was actually kind of a slavery. But we pretended it was freedom for women. And over time, as the sexual revolution and the women's movement got, got identified closer and closer together, a lot of women began to buy into that illusion. Welcome to the show, Sue. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's so nice to talk with you. I um I was really riveted by when I learned about your story a couple months ago when um, the Daily Signal did that whole whole interview um, with you and a wonderful video that accompanied that. And um, I was sort of glued <laughs> because I think um, certainly my listeners will know why I had you on once they hear this um, conversation. So I'm excited. So tell us how you got started in journalism and your journey to Cosmopolitan Magazine. Okay. Well, I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and I actually, while I was there, I wanted to be a magazine writer. And while I was there in my magazine writing class, uh, we had 
to choose a magazine to invest, just look at it and see how would you sell to this magazine? And I chose Cosmopolitan because Cosmo was the hottest women's magazine in the nation at that time. And I came away saying, I told my journalists in training, I said, I have to say these articles in this magazine, these stories in this magazine look like they're made up. I said, they're too packed. And when, when I graduated from the college and went to the, to New York City, I applied for a job in the New York, in the New York Times. I didn't, it was just said it was a magazine. It didn't tell me what. And when I got there, it was Cosmo. <laughs> so I got the, and I beat out like 18 other people and I got the job. And while I was on Cosmo's staff, I found out that I had been right. Those articles were made up. Those stories about these women had living these happy-go-lucky sex lives and popping into bed with all these men, they were just made up. Because remember, this was in the early 1970s, and there weren't that many women doing that stuff in those days. But they were. They weren't talking about mm-hmm. it. So. Absolutely. And that's, um, you know... <laughs> So this is so dear to my heart because so much of what I do is is talk about um, this this propaganda. And we're going to get into really a good conversation about propaganda and what that is. And I know that you, you did that in your book, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, you land in Cosmopolitan. In fact, I want to read just a little bit from your book, even though we haven't quite gotten into that yet, because I think it sort of picks up where you just left off on your story. Okay. You wrote... I can give you no justification for what I did in my former life. I will only say this in my weak defense. I was a young woman searching for truth, freedom, and meaning in the world, but I had no clue where to find them. I grew up as a small-town Iowa girl and passionately desired to escape from the prison of small-mindedness I perceived around me. And thus it was that after graduating from the University of Missouri School of Journalism, I found myself one day in New York City and I was seated across a large wooden desk from Roberta Ashley, articles editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. Cosmo insiders seemed to know things I didn't know, secrets that made them successful in the world. My mind burned to know what they knew. For a small-town Iowa girl, Cosmo's big-time glamour, success, and prestige were intoxicating. In my mind, the job assistant to the articles editor of Cosmopolitan, was a small-town girl's dream come true. Only later would I realize how dark the dream had become. Eventually, it would lead to a cacophony of mixed, confused messages in our culture about women, work, sex, marriage, and relationships, errors that have divided our nation and continue to haunt us to this day. So that's what I meant when I said that that brings me to to basically the work that I do every week. So I'm really fascinated by your story. And I want to start with talking about the owner, I guess you call her the owner of Cosmopolitan, right? Helen Gurley Brown. Editor-in-chief. Editor-in-chief. Her magazines were the owner of it, first corporation. Oh, sorry. Was she? Okay. So she ran it, I guess we should say. Yeah, she's the editor-in-chief. Okay. And she was a childless woman. She was married for a long time, which was interesting, but she did not have any children. And her ultimate message, you said, was that of course, it was the same as the sexual revolutions, which is that sexual liberation will set you free and motherhood essentially gets in the way of that right. freedom. And so this magazine is really sort of an, a manifestation of the sexual revolution. Yes? 
Oh, it was. It was a Playboy clone. This was a Playboy for young women. She, Helen Gurley Brown had even gone to Hugh Hefner and gotten some of his writers and some of his agents that he worked with. So this was, remember this, she, she turned Cosmo, Cosmo had been a general interest magazine, and she turned it into a sex rag, what I call a sex mm-hmm. rag, in 1960. Yeah. What would you say the overall message that she wanted to sell was? Hard work and sex without the kids will set you free. Okay, so very, very pro-unmarried sex and very anti-motherhood. Yes? And very, yes, and very pro-hard um, work. She Remember, she, she had worked very hard, and she thought it was her hard work that had gotten her where she was. Well, and of course, that sounds very innocuous, hard work. Not many people would argue with hard work. But you're, right. but you're saying hard work at the exclusion of everything else, I think. Is that what you mean? Right, exactly. Yeah. Hard work and sex without the kids. Right, got so it. You, Right. You had, it, was, it was a double whammy. Got it. So how were you taught to sell this message? Well, Helen Gurley Brown had actually written up a list of rules to, on how to write stories for Cosmo. And I can give you some of these rules. I call them propaganda because propaganda is, what is propaganda? It's half truth, limited truth, and truth out of context. There's always a little bit of truth, just like we were saying, hard, nothing wrong with hard work. Right. Right. Um, so, so there's always a little truth in propaganda, but it's the it's the part that's not true that gets you. Right. Here's for example. Here, I found I kept that list of rules for 50 years, and when I was writing Subverted, the book that you're reading from, I couldn't find that list of rules. And then about two years ago, in the garage, in a box, I found it. So I had the whole list of rules. And I can rewrite from those and should tell you what they said. Okay. Oh, wow. I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got, I've got the rules. So propagandists, uh, as I say, they make up stories. That's the, uh, that's the important uh, thing to say. Here's something I'll read to you. Since some of, since most of the women were not part of the sexual revolution at that time, mm-hmm. I well, here's how we're going to make up these stories about these ordinary women who she called civilians. Mm. You know, I guess, okay, I guess the sexual revolutionaries were in the army and the rest of us were civilians. Okay. Right. But she writes, try to locate some of the buildings, restaurants, nightclubs, parks, streets, as well as entire case histories in cities other than New York, even if you deliberately have to plant them elsewhere. Most writers live in New York. Well, about that time, they did. 92% of our readers do not. But by making up these women and planting them in places like Cleveland and Albuquerque and Des Moines, of course, we made the sex revolution, then quite shocking mores, seem a lot more of a widespread and acceptable than they actually were. So the unspoken most message to the young reader was, everybody else is doing this. Why are you being such a stick in the mud? So I'm I'm smiling over here because that's that's exactly been my point for 20 years is that this message that's coming through to young women is only servicing this small minority of women who live this way. And it's presented as though it's the norm, which then affects the everyday person because they think that what they're seeing is the norm. So they're making decisions based on, uh, well, this is your whole point, a lie. Right. Right. And they're miserable. 
Exactly. Yeah, because yeah, because this is a false this is a false way to live. Here's another one. She gives. Uh, she, remember now, she they tell these stories and they make these stories up as if about women who are a lot like you, mm-hmm. you know. And if you're feeling insecure, and who isn't sometimes, right? And and you're young and you want to be successful and stuff like this, then then these these stories are appealing to you. And here's here's another one. Here's a rule on. Uh, of, here's a story that Helen actually had written in these rules about an imaginary girl named Erica who appeared and this story appeared in an article entitled one man is not enough okay <laughs> all right here's the beginning of it she had been living for a definition of feminine nature that was doing her an injustice say that and again wait read that one sentence again for me had been living for a definition of feminine nature that was doing her an injustice, okay? Uh-huh. Locking herself into a monogamous relationship she was a, with a married man, she was more often than not left with no man at all. The elusive fellow in question did plan to marry her as soon as he could work his wife around to getting a divorce. So is Cosmo's advice not to sleep with married men? No. No, 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 no. Cosmo's advice is to sleep not with one married man, but with several. So in her best-selling book, Sex and the Single Girl, here's what Helen wrote. It seems to me the solution is not to rule out married men, but to keep them as pets. While they are using you to varnish their egos, you use them to add spice to your life. I say them advisedly. One married man is dangerous. A potpourri can be fun. So, there you go. I have a question for you. How did you, I guess, rectify uh, the her her message and the fact that she was? Didn't you say she was married for like fifty years to one man? Yes, she was. In fact, she said that if David, she was married to David Brown, who was a, a very famous producer at the time. He was a producer of Jaws and Driving Miss Daisy. She said if David ever had an affair, she'd kill him. So where no. where do you think this came from, this this desire to tell people to live a life that she clearly wasn't even living herself? Like, what is that? She was an, had been a very successful copy editor in California, or copywriter in in uh, California. She was a uh, advertising copywriter. And this was ad copy. She was selling the Cosmo lifestyle because that's what she was using to sell products in the magazine. Now, let me explain. If you understand how propaganda works, Edward Bernays was wrote a book called Propaganda. He was is considered the father of public relations. And he wrote that book titled Propaganda in, nine, in the early 1900s, in the 1920s. He thought propaganda was a really good thing. But, but he explained, how do you sell pianos to the middle class? Because a piano is a pretty high ticket item. You sell a piano by selling the music room. You have all of these beautiful magazines with these very successful people, famous rich people who have music rooms in their house. And once you've sold the middle class on the idea of having a music room, they'll just think, ah, I gotta have a piano. 
you see. So you sell, you change the whole, uh, whole person's whole world around them in a way that makes them want to buy this stuff. So how do you sell beautiful clothes, cosmetics, hair products, contraception, abortion, singles travel, all these things that are in these women's magazines, high fashion women's magazines. You sell them by selling the Cosmo lifestyle. And once you've convinced a young woman that this is the lifestyle she wants to live, she'll think, ah, I just have to have all these other products. And so Cosmo was extraordinarily successful. You have to remember in the early 1970s when I went there, it was the hottest women's magazine in the mm. nation and also had, I mean, advertisers were coming out of the, yeah. the woodwork trying to get into Cosmo. And so that, that was such a successful magazine that you see so many fashion women, women's fashion magazines today that are following the Cosmo lead, if you will. I have a quote here that you where you talked about propaganda in this way. You said propaganda cuts off the democratic discourse, blocks genuine dialogue, and keeps the public from participating in reality. By the time the propagandists' deceptions are exposed to the twisted truth they are, untold and irreversible damage has often been done to the external order of human existence. And of course, that's where we are today. Uh, that's what that's I'm constantly are. fighting. I do relationship, uh, marriage and relationship coaching, and I'm dealing with the fallout of this very thing that you write about. And it's not pretty. It's difficult. It's sad. It's, it's just, it's mind-blowing, really. And it really comes from exactly this. Now, this led to you to write this book. And I have a question for you. Cause so this, okay, so the name of the book is Subverted how I helped the sexual revolution hijack the women's movement. And it's like a whistleblower's book. You wrote it in two, or it came out anyway, in 2015. Take me through your trajectory of like how, you know, when you finished, how, how long you were there with Cosmo, when you finished, what you did afterward, and then getting up to writing this book, however many years later. Okay. I uh, quit writing for Cosmo in the late uh, 80s, 1980s. And I, then I went on, remember, I, I was a well-trained journalist. Yeah. And I went on and started writing for Reader's Digest and places that actually did fact-checking. <laughs> um, I, so I wrote, you know, I, so in the 90s, I wrote for, for Reader's Digest. I wrote for Woman's Day magazine. Um, it wasn't until I became a Catholic in 2003. So you're talking, I, I quit writing for Cosmo in the in late 1980s. Although my last article to appear in the magazine was in the early 1990s because they had some backlog there. Okay, so I came in in 2003 to the Catholic Church and I began to look. I could see more clearly what had happened. You know, people around me were telling me, you know, hey, this, this didn't work out so well. And I'm looking around and I thought, I've got to come clean with what we said there and how, how we did that stuff. So that was when I decided I had to write um, Subverted. Was, your, was it an aha moment as a result of just looking through the world from a Catholic lens kind of thing? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And also, uh, I also went to the Walk for Life in San Francisco. And I, of course, you know, so those Walk for Life and March for Life are underreported by the uh, mainstream media. Mm -hmm. 
and I was there. I had gone with a friend who had had three abortions and she was going to be silent no more. And she was urging me to come to be her support. So I came with her to the Walk for Life that was in 2009. And I looked around me, I could not believe these crowds. And I could not believe what I saw. And I thought, oh my goodness. I said, the uh, journalists have missed this. And I'm one of the ones that's missed it. So I, mm -hmm. that, was, that was kind of a final, you gotta do something. You know, I, it, 2003, I came in, as, in the Catholic church and slowly my, my understanding of the abortion issue, especially mm -hmm. uh, changed. And because you remember now in my book, um, I did have an abortion when I was 27 and it was a very, it was the worst decision of my life. But it wasn't until I came into the Catholic church and could be healed from that that mm. I was able to admit so, so, that it was a decision. Yeah. So prior to 2003, you were pro-choice. Is that, is that what you mean? I was, I was, yes, I would say. Or indifferent when I came into or the, whatever. Well, of course, I was older then. It was too late for me to do anything. I was in the, my age, 57. So I, I, the abortion issue and the contraception issue were um, behind me at that point. So I didn't uh, didn't address that right away when I came into the church. I thought, eh, well, I don't I don't have to deal with this. But over time, as I as I as I I did have to deal with it because I realized that my abortion had caused a lot of turmoil inside me. Mm. Um, so I did have to deal with that. So this was a slow this was a slow um, yeah, process. I understand. Was yeah, it was yeah. this prior when uh, when how, let's see how long have you been married? I know that you talk about your marriage in your book. 40 years. 40 years. Okay. So, so in 2003, you had your change of heart or whatever. And then how did the subverted idea come to be? Well, that, that's what I'm telling you. It was when I went to that uh, march walk for life and saw all those people around me mm. and realized that I had missed the story got that it. I realized I had to, I've been thinking about it before. I've been thinking I've got to write this story. Um, but when I saw that, and saw that March for Life and Walk for Life and realized that this was not going away. This has divided our whole nation. It was time to write this book, and I had to do that. And it took me a number of years because it was 2015 before it came out. <laughs> it's a long process to write a book, is it not? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. I could do a whole show just on publishing. I really need to do that because that's one thing I've I haven't taken the time to do, and I need to do. Um, but okay, so this so was it fair to say the thesis? Let's talk about the thesis of your of subverted. You set out. I mean, yes, you were blowing the whistle on all the cultural propaganda about divorce and uncommitted right. sex and all that stuff. But you wanted to answer the question. Correct me if I'm wrong, of how the sexual revolution and the women's movement became commingled. And you said, right. quote, in the beginning, the women's movement and the sexual revolution were distinctly separate. And then you wanted to show in this book how they got. Uh, intertwined right they well see when i was sitting at my little blue desk at cosmo in 1971 the women's movement was in full swing at that time and betty friedan helen Miller brown would have loved for betty friedan to write for cosmo but betty friedan called cosmo quite obscene and quite horrible so you had here you had the women's movement on one side launched by betty friedan with the feminine mystique in 1963. And then you had Helen Gurley Brown, who, who launched the Sexual Revolution magazine, Cosmo, in 1965. By the time I got there, 
I saw that they were two radically separate movements. So how did they get joined together? Uh, that was the question people started to ask me. And I and a friend of mine said, was it abortion? I looked at her and I thought, I think it was. Hmm. And, and but, but I didn't know, you see. And, and um, it, that's why it took me so long to write that book. I had to find out how did the sexual, how did abortion get inserted in the women's movement? Because abortion is anti-motherhood, mm-hmm. anti-woman. I mean, mm-hmm. it's anti-woman. Mm-hmm. So how did that get joined together? Well, it took me many, many years. And if we hadn't had Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who, as you know, was an abortionist mm-hmm. who later became a uh, pro-life activist, um, he became a Catholic eventually. But um, Dr. Bernard Nathanson had spilled the beans by telling the world that he and a man named Lawrence Lader, who were co-founders of what's now NARAL Pro-Choice America, had convinced Betty Friedan to insert abortion in the women's movement. If he hadn't told us that, we wouldn't know how, what happened. So, but how did he do that? And, and when did that happen? It was on November 18th, 1967, in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel in, in Washington, D.C., that the National Organization for Women, which was the original big feminist movement, um, um, Betty Friedan was the president. It was on that night that uh, abortion was inserted in the women's movement. And it was inserted into the women's movement by a vote of only 57 people. There were only a little over 100 people in the room that night, and only 57 people voted to insert abortion in the women's movement. So, excuse me, I'm going to stop you right there for a minute, for a second. Did you um, see Mrs. America? I have not seen it. I know about it. So though. this was covered yeah. in that. That's why I'm bringing it up. It was it, They showed that. They show that? Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, and they, they and they even that. talked about, they showed the, uh, the fact, you know, they showed Gloria Steinem talking with somebody about, you know, putting abortion in and they didn't want to, like the whole battle about whether or not to incorporate that into the larger movement and um, how to do that in a way that would not, you know, that would work or whatever. Anyway, just a side sure. issue. I, yes. Well, I have not seen that. Now, what I got was the minutes of that meeting. And I also got the National Organization for Women has its papers housed in uh, the Schlesinger Library in Boston. And you have to get their permission to get in. So I, I said to a friend of mine that actually the one that I went to the Walk for Life with, I said, they're not going to let me into their papers. And she said, yeah, try it. They might. I had permission within a week. So I was able to go into that room and and see what actually happened. Mm. There were people that, that resigned from the National Organization for Women over the abortion vote, and they wrote very angry letters um, to the organization within two or three days after the meeting mm. occurred. So they were, so these were, they, this was very fresh in their mind what had actually happened in that meeting. So in this book, subver- it was subverted, we're able to recreate what happened in that meeting. I I would uh, have to take a look at uh, Mrs. America because I don't. Gloria Steinem was not at that meeting. No, so no, no. I, I didn't. No, I don't. Yeah, I yeah. I might be confusing it with another small thing where they voted on something, but I'm I'm pretty sure 
either which way, it was definitely covered that that it was obvious that uh, it was not a good idea to inject abortion into this movement. And they had a discussion about it and tried to hide like they wanted it in there, but they had to couch it in such a way that it didn't sound so bad. Like, don't say um, you know, uh, don't use one phrase, but use reproductive rights instead. You know, that kind of thing where you where you uh, mess with the language to make it sound softer. Right. Right. Anyway, well, that that's a, that re, again, there you go with a propaganda. Right. Right is a propagandistic uh, term. That's a. I mean, I God. I mean, I've written about that ad nauseum. That it's not like you say outright lies necessarily at all. It's all in the language and softening it to such a degree that you you it makes it impossible for the average person who doesn't feel strongly one way or the other, or who doesn't know how she feels about it to speak out against it. Because if you call something, if you put the word rights in it, that changes the whole thing. Also, you have to remember now in that bill of rights that the national organization drew up that night or that day and night, um, there were a lot of things in there that were, everybody would agree with. I mean, women should not be fired for being pregnant. A woman should be able to go to law school and yeah. medical school. Yeah. A woman should be a married woman should be able to apply for credit in her own name. A lot of these things that we were fighting in those days, people forget that women were fired for being pregnant at that time. I was fired for being pregnant. So there was a lot of um, pressure on business and, and women were, were were kind of fighting mad over this stuff. Yeah. But so, so you take these real issues. And then within those, you insert abortion. What's well, hard for the average person, it just looks mm-hmm. like they all together. Again, that's a propagandistic tool. You put in yep. one snake in the grass in the middle of that. And not just abortion, of course, but sex. If, well, I would call it free sex because hooking up is what it's called today. There's a phrase here. I mean, not a phrase. There's a um, paragraph that I, another that I pulled out that you wrote that I think gets to the heart of exactly what has happened today with respect to this issue of the commingling of with the women, what you call the women's movement and the sexual revolution. You said, how did the women's movement and the sexual revolution become so intertwined in the popular mind that many young women today sincerely believe that to be liberated is to go to college, pursue a career and be as sexually active as possible with no strings attached how did these two separate revolutions get blended into one in a way that it has led to so much pain for women? And so even if you remove the abortion piece out of it for just a moment, one of the things that I deal with all the time is that is what you just described there. And I would add to it the postponing of marriage and motherhood as, as, as long as humanly possible and trying to fit it in down the road, right. which so right. often does not work. So, it's not just the abortion piece, but it's that like it's the sexual like, without the sexual piece of it, without the free sex concept, you can't postpone marriage. So like I've always said, well, the reason why people got married at 22, 23 back in the day is because sex was associated with marriage. Right. And they didn't want to wait another 10 years to be having sex. That's so, right. That's right. So, I mean, that's so, I, I, so, I agree. And I and I've said you can't simultaneously argue. Well, just forget about marriage to all women, you know, for like 10 years and then expect them to be celibate. It's not going to work that way. So of course you had to tell them, well, then just have sex with, you know, just have sex like a man or however you want to describe it. And of course this is um, backfiring hugely. 
Hugely, hugely. Hugely. Like you can't even overstate it. Yeah, because because the more times a, a woman has her heart broken, she doesn't know how to choose a man because and he he's if he thinks that he gets sex no matter what, he's he's convinced that every woman wants it right, you know, and Bingo. To, to have it. So so you've got that problem is she both he and she are going to be extremely damaged by the sexually, emotionally, everything by the time they get to marriage when they're 32. I mean, it's really, unless they've been celibate, and who can be celibate that long? No, exactly. That's my, I mean, you just, that's why, you know, I I think there's a lot of people that I, I, I think they just haven't thought through this, but when I talk to them about, like, I even know conservative minded people who want their children to wait as long as possible to get married. And I'm kind of an, I'm, I mean, I haven't gone out on the record for it per se, but I am an arg, I am a um, supporter of earlier marriage, not early marriage, but earlier marriage than women are doing now. And part of the reason is exactly what we're talking about. Not only do I think it's beneficial financially, emotionally, and all the rest, you, you just can't simultaneously say, wait 10 years, um, but don't have sex. So, right. so invariably, if you wait 10 years, you're going to move in and out of all these relationships and you're going to have damage. There's just no question about it. And I don't think that's a good place to start a marriage at all. It's not. It's not. Whereas, well, I was married to this one wonderful man for 40 years. He, he's gone now. He died you know, 12 years ago. But um, we were, had a wonderful marriage. And, and it was it was a it was the first time, first time of sex was for me. I mean, he was a little older and he'd been around a little bit, but um, we had a wonderful marriage. And I and also another thing is that early marriage, a little earlier. I think I was six, uh, 22 when we got married. Um, that you kind of grow up together. Yes, there's that you other know? piece. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of you're kind of kids together who grew up together. Um, you have your kids early. You're still having fun with little kids because you're not much more than a little kid yourself, you know. Whereas if you wait till you're like 45 to have it, I know some people that have got you know teenagers and they're in their 50s, and I'm like, oh my goodness, Paul, what are you thinking? You know? Yeah. Um, by the time I was 50, my husband and I were 50. We were going to go out and party. I mean, we were free. <laughs> it's a it's a different way of looking at it and um so well can i ask you a question Sure. you said that you had an abortion at 27 right so that was with your husband yes do you want to share that story or no well it was i i don't i'm not um shy about sharing it anymore but it is we were both freelance writers and we were not making a lot of money at that time both of us were working temporary jobs and I had been fired for being pregnant. You have to remember, you're fired for being pregnant in those days. And we had two children. Now, what are you going to do? You don't have any money. You're working temp- both working temporary jobs. You've got two kids to support. And now suddenly, wham, uh, you've got a third one on the way. It was a, it was a very torturous thing. But and Roe v. Wade had just been um, we had just been decided the year before. And it was, well, actually that year, actually, Roby Reed had just come into, uh, had just been decided. And there was part of me that said, oh, well, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, moral. I mean, the, the courts say it's okay. Yeah. 
So, you know, you didn't think it through. Now, looking back, oh, I'd never do it now. Mm-hmm. But, but looking when you're in, in your 20s and you're under pressure and you think this is the way out. It's not, by the way. You're never going to forget it. And it's going to torture you for the rest of your life until you get until you get some healing. Which it sounds like you did when you became Catholic. Is that is that part of that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I confession. Well, I think I think you talked to some. I read somebody's um, a comment that somebody made on Amazon that you talked a, a fair amount in your book about your marriage and that it, that he really got a lot out of that. So, um, well, let me tell you something. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about how books are written. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I I wanted to write a book, a history of the women's movement, and that's what I did. And when I finished it and sent it to the publisher. They said, oh, we want your personal story. How does an old powerful girl become a Catholic? <laughs> I, I actually I went out by a, a lake and cried for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd worked this thing for three years. And so then I came back and I decided, and I actually talked to my priest about it. And he said, well, if you're going to do it, he didn't say I should. He said, "If you, because I knew I was going to have to talk about that abortion in the book. And I said, he said, if you're going to do it, do it as an aesthetic exercise. Just the fact. Mm-hmm. Just. And so what I decided to do was not tell my story, but tell Walter's story, my beloved husband's story. Mm-hmm. So have, this book is actually also a love story because I'm telling, because everything that happened to him happened to me. So if I, by telling his story, I got passed all along. Great. Well, I have to say, publishers, I mean, that's true <laughs> that stories definitely t- um, sell better than just straight up nonfiction. <laughs> right. right. I, I, I've written five books, and only one of them has a memoir component, and it definitely is my best selling <laughs> book. Oh, yeah. People like those personal stories. Yeah, so. definitely. So, what was the reaction to the book when it came out in 2015? Well, it's been very positive. I mean, if you go on Amazon, they've got all five stars all across the board. People are very, very kind about it. Um, I've had lots of talks um, that I've done. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been very positively received. I think because, as you say, there's that personal story in it, and it's a love story. So if you want to, it's actually, inadvertently, this book defends marriage. I mean... Because it's such a beautiful marriage. I mean, it's not perfect, and, yeah. and you'll see the moments when it's not. <laughs> yeah. But uh, oh, on the on the, it was a beautiful marriage, and it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, I think we need a lot more stories like that out there in order to. I think the best way to bring marriage back into the fold as being a positive thing instead of a negative thing, specifically for women, but this is certainly true for both women and men. Is, is to hear more of those stories. And we just simply don't. I mean, we just don't. I know. It's I very know. frustrating. I mean, I don't know. Some, I don't I've know. even thought about turning this podcast into this sort of, I want to get as many happily married people in here as I can to just like, you know, have this conversation to show what it can be like instead of constantly hearing all the negative. It's very frustrating to me. Well, listen, let me tell you my, what my beloved husband used to do. Okay, now we're married like... This was before he got sick. He had very serious cancer. But before he got sick, 
my parent, my parents had a fairly decent marriage. No, it was quite good when I was a child, quite good. And I, I, but one thing that they did that I always thought was kind of strange is they would lie in bed in the morning and fight over who was going to get up and make the coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Every morning, huh? Yeah, every morning. And Walter would get up in the morning while I was still in bed, go in, make the coffee, make it just the way I like it, bring me in a cup, a cup of coffee, give me a kiss, and say, now this is after 30 years, 8 years of marriage, good morning, most beautiful of God's creatures under the sky. <laughs> Can oh you believe it? God. Sue, I love that. That's what I mean. That's the kind of stuff. It's just inspirational. And it's just those little things make such a difference in your daily life yes. with a partner for the rest of your life. I mean, that's awesome. I love that. He was a beautiful, he was, a, but, but I, I have to say, you see there again, we had it, we married early. I was a virgin when we got married. He really was romantic. Yeah. Now that's another thing. If men have been out there and had their hearts broken 17 times before they finally settle down, they can't be romantic in that same way. I don't, think. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I think in order to have that attitude about it, it has to be, it has to be like you found this one, you know, this one special diamond in the rough, I guess, That's right. um, That's- in order to feel that way about it. I can, I can appreciate that. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, bringing, I mean, that's just a whole, like I said, that's a whole podcast of itself to talk about the emotional damage that people are bringing into their marriages. It's just... It, it it's too much, you know, and it, it, it just distracts from what you need to do. I mean, it just, it just isn't helpful at all. If anything, it just, it's harder. It makes it harder. Let's put it that way. One thing, one thing, I, cause, because I've just written another book. Um, I don't know if I'll sell it or not. Um, called Christmas in the ICU. And, and it was when Walter and I were in the ICU for 17 days over Christmas and New Year's. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there was one thing that um, I said in that book, that I've said in that book, we, we never, ever mentioned the D word, divorce. <laughs> no matter how many fights we yep. have, we never use mm-hmm. the D word. But if you've broken up with 17 men before you get to the, this marriage, that's going to be pretty hard to suddenly say, okay, now we're never going to mention the D word. After you've divorced even four or five guys. No question. No question. It's one of the things I've talked about it a lot. You just, you don't even entertain it. Take divorce off the table is how I like to phrase it. That's right. If you, it's all, it's just all in the way you look at it. And if you, if you give yourself an out and you know that out is there, the way you approach the conflict is completely different than the way you approach it if you don't, if you pretend it's not an option. I mean, obviously it is an option, but just pretend it's not. Assume you couldn't do it. And it makes you work harder. It makes you think better. It's just, it's a win-win. And um, that, yeah, that divorce, I mean, that divorce. So so let's go back to the whole, you know, the larger issue of the sexual revolution being a lie, which is basically what you're out out there talking about. And you were both out there talking the same thing. And I know that, and its effects are on full display today. And I know that your primary focus is abortion. Um, mine is more marriage, um, especially delayed marriage and the work family conflict and all of that other stuff and Actually, casual, casual I, sex. That's another big one. Um, yeah. 
actually my mind is not just abortion that just is is one piece of it because it all goes together yeah it all goes true together. true the, just the fallout is so huge it's just so huge and we're dealing with it we young women in particular are dealing with it today um and don't really realize that it's been this domino effect from back exactly yeah. like what you're talking about when you when you were sitting there behind a desk right telling the sto- telling the fake stories the fake news before they called it fake news Right. You called it marketing fairy tales. Yes, yes. You were marketing fairy tales. And of course, Sue, that, this is dear to my heart because it's not just in Cosmopolitan and all the other magazines, it's in modern day television, left and right. And so... Internet, everywhere. Yes, but I'm specifically thinking of, you know, just all of the shows that are everyday pop culture drama that, you know, in our days, you know, we, we... we're raised on Little House on the Prairie and Waltons. And today, not to be, it doesn't have to be that extreme, although I still love those shows, I admit it. Um, <laughs> but the but the stuff that my daughter, she's 20, so I can't stop what she watches today. We didn't let them watch stuff when they were younger. But now she does. She still loves, she's in college. She loves all that, um, you know, pop culture shows that there's heavy drama, very focused on love and sex, or sex, let's put it that way. Um, and I... I've finished sort of teaching her anything because she knows what I think and I have to zip my lip now if I, if I watch it with her, but it's just, it's maddening to me because people don't realize that the steady drip drip um, exposure to this as normal absolutely gets in your brain. Absolutely. It does. You cannot pretend that it doesn't, although she does. You know, it's just, but they, it's not true. There's no way to have that. Now, if you watched it once in a while, maybe not. But year after year, all the time, it's going to get in you that this is normal, normal behavior. And of course, it's not. So it's really hard for me to sit there and just say nothing when I'm like, but, but, but. Yeah. Um, right. So it's not just magazines is my point. I'm very, I, I feel very strongly about this message coming through the television screens. I think it's been extremely um, damaging. One thing that you've said, though, that I thought was really, really good, I, I was looking at your books, too, <laughs> is have sex all the time <laughs> with your in, in marriage. We had, I, I swear, yeah. all, we had sex almost every night. Oh, my gosh. For 40 <laughs> years? For 40 years, except when I was having a period. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you're making so, me look really bad because I cannot say that. <laughs> I'm not letting my husband hear this. I just refuse. Well, remember, I, he, my husband used to say, I married the other woman. Oh, my God. Listen to you. That's so funny. I think that's wonderful. I mean, I don't. I, that's 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 impressive. I mean, I, you know, I do. I do say just do it. Um, I certainly do not force that force that frequency. Oh, my God. Um, but but yeah, I do think that I do have a whole. Yeah. I mean, like that's again, that's a whole nother podcast, but to just just dealing with and I talked about this last week with the guests that I had on that you a lot of women are not going to be in the mood or at the ready the way men are. So that doesn't mean that you can't just start without being in the mood because you will almost invariably get in the mood. And so you sometimes just have to force it a little bit. And you do find that after, you know, it's it's a it's an emotional thing that that transpires because oxytocin is released, you know, so it's like all, only good can come of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
Well, think of the other guy. I mean, he, and besides, you know, you've married this man. The worst thing, the absolute worst thing is to get so mad at him that you, that, that you withdraw sexually. Oh, yes. Oh, oh. oh, yeah. Never, never do that. No, never. no, that's, that's right. That's what, that's what makes it so difficult for women is when they are resentful or filled with all these. Yeah. You almost, I mean, you have to solve those other issues in order for a woman typically to be able to warm up to that, which is um, complicated on its own because you want to almost reverse it and say, look, if you're mad for a long time, do it anyway. You'll be less mad when you're done. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I knew a woman and she was so mad at her husband and she would not, and she, they had just been married a year or so. And uh, she was withholding. I said, do not do that. I said, you will, you know, Mm -hmm. have have sex with him. You'll make up, Mm -hmm. you know, and and he was getting madder and madder at her, yep. of course. And so no 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 no. And so she went back and she and she seduced him one night and there and everything went went fine again. <laughs> there you go. Such a simple answer. <laughs> yeah, you've got the you've got the reins here, kiddo. That's go right. On. You know, I guess people don't talk about this as much as they should because that's the part of the sexual revolution was okay. Lots of sex in marriage is fine. Oh, I know, I know. Oh my gosh. Well, I do. I talk about it all the time. This went in a very different direction, Sue, than I expected at the end, but I love it. It's great. Awesome. Now, you know what I'm going to remember most from this conversation. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is really big fun. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, they, my book, you can go to my book and I'm not, I don't have a website actually. Okay. So let me say that again for people subverted how I helped the sexual revolution hijack the women's movement. And it's Sue Ellen Browder, B R O W D E R. Like chowder with a B. <laughs> yeah. Chowder with a B. And I'm, I, yeah. I'm, let me know when that book comes out about Christmas and, or whatever you said, what'd you call yeah. it? What's it? Christmas. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, yeah. I would be yeah, interested in reading that story. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sue. I really appreciate it. And um, you take care of yourself. And thank, thank you. thanks for writing this book and for um, getting out there and telling everybody the truth. I love whistleblowers. My favorite. <laughs> thanks, Sue. Thank you. Bye-bye. When you got married things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneBanker.com.
And now for the email of the day. This is from Katie, who writes, Hi, Suzanne. My name is Katie. I'm a traditional old soul walking the earth as a 25-year-old from Metro Detroit. I wanted to reach out and thank you for the work you're doing, especially through your podcast. Growing up, I've been consumed by feminist culture and literature, struggling unhappily through much of high school and my college years thinking, this can't be right. I'm so concerned for many of my friends, especially women who live destructive lifestyles and don't want to hear, let alone understand, this perspective. I'm also concerned for the future of women, relationships, marriage, and children, and I'm wondering if you have any advice on how we can bridge the gap and better reach young women. So I thought that was actually a great email to read on this particular podcast episode with Sue Ellen Browder because they certainly go hand in hand. This is what saddens me so much is that there's there's women out there everywhere who are dealing with the after effects of exactly what we talked about today in the episode and they feel very alone. And my first inclination is when she asks how to bridge the gap. I mean, first of all, people just have to come out of the woodworks and start talking about it. That's all there is to it. If the more people who do that, and it doesn't have to be people like Sue Ellen Browder who were on the inside. It can be a mother or father who sees what's going on and just holds back and doesn't share with their kids what they know to be true as well. I think that absolutely happens that parents don't say as much as they should say. And so I think just rejecting the idea that you have to be part of, you know, the status quo is, is a mindset that you have to get into to sort of be open and not necessarily wait for someone else to take the lead on that. Just tell the truth and be proud of what you want and what you stand for, even when it does go against um, the cultural narrative. Katie also adds that she wants to do whatever she can to help jumpstart these conversations. And I think one, I would love to do that on my podcast as I, I thought I should have more and more. And I have had several women on who are in their 20s who we spent an entire hour talking about the other side. And I think that I will have more of that. And so the more you can share those podcasts or articles when you read about them, you know, at least you're doing your part in, in help spreading the word. So I um, hope that helps, Katie. And thank you for your email. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Venker Show. Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk to Dr. Robert Glover, author of the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, written for men who try too hard to please others while neglecting their own needs, thus causing unhappiness and resentfulness. Don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in the Suzanne Venker Show in the Facebook search bar and you'll find it. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Venker Show.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.